Hello, this is Roman Gabriel, and you are listening to The Grilling Truth. Welcome to the Grueling Truths NFL Legends Show, brought to you by Gridiron Moan Replenishing Care Technologies. I'm your host, as always, for the Legends Show, Mike Goodpasser, and tonight my guest is the all-time scoring leader for the Cincinnati Bengals. Help me welcome to the show number three and number ten, if I remember correct, Jim Breach. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Yes, I was ten for the first four years, and then number three for my last nine years. Yeah, we could start off there. Why? Well, when I got to the Bengals, they didn't have single digits. So I was, I was offered 10 and 11. I, I can't remember what the other, maybe 10 and 11. So I took 10, and it, that was Chris Barr's number previously. So uh, I said to Tom Gray, the equipment manager, said, hey, Tom, if we ever go to single digits, I'd love to have three because that's what I wore in college. Jan Stanerud was my idol. Thought so the world to him, so I wanted to get number three. And then when Boomer got drafted, part of his contract was that he would wear seven. So as soon yeah. as seven came into play, then any of the single digits came into play. And so I showed up at minicamp that next year, and there was a three in my locker. Well, I always wondered that. So, all right, um, we'll start off. Uh, and of course, everybody knows you were a kicker. You want to tell us about your time growing up in California and how you became a kicker, and maybe some of your early influences. Well, uh, yeah, I grew up in Sacramento, and you know it was really hot in the summers, and you're outside playing all the time and doing stuff. I played all all sports, whatever was in season. I played um, obviously football during the fall. And uh, just every time we did something, you know, if we had played, we played East, uh, East Portal Park, played uh, flag football, and I was always the guy that kicked off. I was always the guy that punted if we had to punt. And I was always the guy that kicked. And really, um, probably kickball had a big influence on me because we had a fence in left field. So I'd almost seen me have to run up and kind of turn into it and to kick it out there to left field and, so that's kind of how I got started with a little bit of soccer-style kicking. But as far as, you know, watching it on TV was the Gogolak brothers and Gary Upremian, and then Stenerud came along. Stenerud actually came to Sacramento and played in the Amos Alonzo Stag Bowl, which was the 1AA or Division Two. I think it was 1AA. It was San Division Diego State three, against Mon- because I think Kenny Anderson played there when he played at Augustana. I think Amos Alonzo State. Yeah, I don't think so, three. but this is, this, is, this is San Diego. They played San Diego State, so I don't think. Ah, yeah, it couldn't have been then. You're right. They were one. It, it, it changed later, but yeah. this, was 19, this was 1966. This goes way back. Okay, San Diego State so, was uh, like 1AA then, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so. And that's where, yeah. like, Isaac Curtis transferred and – um, Herman Edwards transferred there. Dwayne Osteen transferred San Jose State. They were all one double A, really, really good schools. So I, I just read everything I could on him. I just thought soccer style kicking was really a cool way to do it. And then punt pass and kick came along, and uh, I I did well when I was 12, and I could throw. I threw 
farther than anybody. I punted it about equal to the best ones, and I completely shanked my place kick. I was at the 49er training camp, and the next step would have been on, on the field and then the national championship, and I didn't know how to kick. I didn't know I should be straight on or soccer style. And right then I said, you know what, I'm never going to – I'm a soccer style kicker, and that's what I'm going to do. And then the year after that, I played Pop Warner football. It was my first exposure to tackle football with gear on, which certainly we played as kids without gear. And they gave two points for kicking a conversion. So uh, I think I went 17 or eight, 17 of 18 that year. I kicked two or three field goals. I kicked a 47-yard field goal in practice. And I thought, you know what, this is, I can do this. So that's kind of how I got started kicking. And uh, so that one year playing football where I actually got to kick field goals and extra points really got me thinking that, you know, I can do this. I can do this in high school. That was my big goal. Uh, but, you know, baseball was really my first love. Uh, I played quarterback and kicked, certainly. And then, uh, you know, got to high school and kicked all through high school, played quarterback in high school, played baseball and basketball. And so I played whatever I could, played golf my senior year after a baseball season was over. So I just, I just had a great time. We had great guys, uh, a lot of great athletes. Our uh, baseball team, when I was in high school, had, see, our catcher was all-world series at Washington State. Our first baseman played college ball. Our second baseman, who was a sophomore when I was a senior, played AAA. Our backup shortstop, to me, was also a sophomore there. He played AAA. Our center fielder played AAA. Our right fielder was a first-round pick with the Mets. And then our Legion team had a few more guys, a first-round pick with the Red Sox. And so we had great baseball. Uh, it actually reminds me a lot of Cincinnati, yeah, the baseball there. Yeah. Uh, and football, we had a couple guys playing the NFL besides myself off our team. We had a lot of team speed. We were at inner city high school. Uh, my sophomore year at Sac High, we won the national championship in track. So we had a guy by the name of Carl McCullough that could just fly. And uh, he uh, he basically won it. He, he came in second in three events, and then they came in third in the relay. <clears throat> so we were uh, it was a good time. It was a very diverse school. We were the most integrated school in the country at the time, so you're exposed to a lot of different people. And uh, we had a great coach that was kind of crazy and just got us playing together. So we had we had fun. Football was a blast. You know, all the sports were pretty good. Basketball, we were terrible for whatever reason. We just didn't have any size. We were small. <clears throat> played against Bill Cartwright in high school, basketball. Seven-footer that played for the Chicago Bulls and three of their, uh, their, three of their world championship teams with Jordan. So that was kind of my thing. I mean, we were outside constantly in the summer. You, just, you couldn't get enough of it. You left, you left in the morning. You came back when it got dark. And in between, you probably grabbed a bite to eat or, you know, didn't have cell phones or anything. Mom knew I'd get home about the time the lights came on. So everybody was kind of the same way. Yeah, it was a lot better back then, too, Jim. What's that? It was a lot better back then, too. I agree. I agree it was. Lots, it, uh, I think we felt safer. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember my parents ever being freaked out because I went down the street to go play ball. Yeah. But now, yeah. you know, if my kids go down the street, every 10 minutes I'm looking out and yelling just so I hear their voice so I know everything's fine because... You can't trust that somebody from the outside is not going to come in and do anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But. It's unfortunate. 
All right, so you ended up going to the University of California. What basically led to that decision? I know Mike White, I think, was the coach there at the time. Yeah, I was I was being re- kind of recruited. I mean, I got a letter from Cal. They, were, they showed some interest in me. My junior year, I was all city uh, kicking, and Cal was interested, and it was an unlimited scholarships at those at that time, so you could have several guys at each position. Yeah. So uh, my senior year, I actually t- messed up my quad, so I only kicked in three games. Played quarterback, I made all city at quarterback, but I couldn't I couldn't kick. <clears throat> Cal didn't show any more interest, and they. They went to a guy locally from Sacramento who's also a quarterback and kicker who played baseball, a guy by the name of Butch Edge, and about 6'4", about 200 pounds. He could throw. I faced Randy Lurch, who had a nice long baseball career, and Pete Redfern. I never faced anybody who threw as hard as Butch Edge. I mean, he just he brought it. Um, so he ended up getting a – Getting a first, being a first-round pick, and I didn't get drafted. But in the meantime, after I'd gotten healthy, sometime in May, about this time then, my high school coach, Dave Hotel, called up the uh, cow and said, look, you were interested in him previously. Why don't you give him an opportunity? And we'd love to, we'd love to see what he can do. And so they sent Paul Hackett, who was the head coach at several colleges, uh, later on, and Hack was a recruiter for Sacramento. He came down, watched me kick. I mean, the fact that they came down, he came down, I was, I'm shocked. But he did, and they, he says, you're like, I'm not the special teams guy, but uh, we are looking, possibly, so why don't you come to Cal? So my big recruiting trip was I went to Cal, borrowed my mom's car, drove 75 miles to Berkeley, and it was a world of difference, I can tell you. So I get down there, and... I get into the uh, football office and trying to find a special teams coach, Jim Erkenbeck, and he, uh, he says, oh, yeah, what can I do for you? He said, coach, we're supposed to kick today. He goes, oh, that's right. Let's go up to the stadium. So we get up to the stadium. He says, all right, you got some footballs? I said, no, coach, I thought you would have the footballs. So I didn't have any footballs. Um, that's when you could use a T in college. So I yeah. punted first. I, I punted because they were actually looking for a punter. And I punted and place kicked. And I actually punted pretty well that day. And So he said, you place kick too? I said, yes, I do. And he goes, well, do you have any tees? I said, no, coach, I, I kind of thought you would have all that stuff. And So we hunted around the stadium because when I got there, the sprinklers were on. There was nothing open. I changed in the stands. So we, the sprinklers were going, we went over, and it was one of those systems that were on the ground where you take the cement cover off, and you get yeah. a pole, and you turn it. Well, he picks up that cement covered cover. It's about an inch thick. He says, this will do. <laughs> so I'm thinking, if I kick this thing, I'm going to break my foot. <laughs> so I go out there. We only went back to about 35 yards, and I made everything. I, I made like eight, seven or eight kicks, kicked them decently, and I was so happy I didn't break my foot. And we get done, and he says, look, we're really not interested in a kicker. We're really looking for an offensive lineman. Because at that point, they had one kicker on full scholarship, one guy that punted and kicked off, and two punts. So four guys kicking that were on full scholarship. 
And even in the days of full scholarships, that's still quite a few guys on full rides. Yeah. So uh, that's when the draft came, and I didn't get drafted, and I, I was really disappointed. Um, and then Butch Edge goes in the first round. So and he was the fifth guy. He was actually the fifth guy. And a little while later, I get a phone call, and it was Paul Hack, and he says, I, I really don't know what we're doing, why we're doing this. You know, I'd kicked, I'd made four field goals in high school. I kept at nine. I only made four. He said, but there's a full scholar, there's a full ride here for you if you come down and sign it. I said, Coach, I'll be there tomorrow. But I drove down, uh, signed the letter of intent, or, you know, signed it. I mean, I was good. I was good as gold. And uh, right after that, I'm playing in a baseball game, a, what they call a semi-pro league. And this scout from the Pirates comes up. And he says, hey, congratulations. I said, well, thank you. He had seen in the paper that I signed with Cal and got this full ride. He goes, oh, that's awesome. Because I just want to let you know, we're interested, we were interested in signing you as a free agent. But uh, I'm not telling you what we're offering. Because I think you ought to go to school. If you want to play baseball, you can still play baseball. If baseball is supposed to happen, baseball will happen. So that was Ronnie King with great advice. I went down to Cal. I played football my freshman year. And I played baseball my freshman year, and then it was just it was just too much. I'd gotten married, and it was just it was too much to do everything. And so I gave up. You know, I took the one that gave me the scholarship. So I obviously stuck with football, and that turned out pretty well. All right, so you got there, and actually some of Cal's best teams were there when you were there. You had a quarterback by the name of Joe Roth. You had Wesley Walker, who ended up being a really good NFL wide receiver. He had Chuck Muncie, one of the great underrated running backs in NFL history. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that team, and especially Joe Roth, because I think that's a guy whose story that you don't hear so much mainstream that I think needs to be heard. Yeah, well, even uh, 74 my freshman year, uh, Joe wasn't there yet. He was a junior college transfer. My freshman year, our quarterback was Steve Barkowski, who ended up being the first pick in the draft. He yeah. was um, he had he had one of the greatest arms I've ever seen. It was just an absolute cannon. He could throw it from goal line to goal line. And he was a great baseball player. And he was an All American his junior year and base or his sophomore year. And he and Vince Ferragamo were trading off at quarterback, and nobody was really taking over the job. And finally, Ferragamo got tired of having to compete for the job and switching up, you know, every other series. So he transferred to Nebraska, and Bart didn't have a great junior season in baseball, so he opted to come back for his senior year and play football. It was just him, and Paul Hack was a great coach. And he ended up becoming the number one pick in the draft. And Chuck Muncie may be the most talented play, most talented offensive player I've ever been around. 6'3", about 230. I, he, actually, this uh, Joe Mixon, the Bengals drafted, reminds me a little bit of him. About six, he's 6'3". Six, the way they run, Muncie was light on. He was like a scat back, and, a, and he, they'd run you over, and he'd catch the ball like a wide receiver. And he was just an amazing player. And, and Wes, Wes could just – I don't see anybody so fast. He would uh, run a – he'd run a streak, and guys would be running right next to him, and then next thing you know, he'd put in another gear, and he'd fly right by him. And his, his catches – his yards per catch in college, 25 yards per catch. 
That's not too bad. Uh, he just didn't. He only had like eighty-five or ninety catches. So he, he caught a lot of bombs. But um, that my sophomore year, we still had Muncie. Our starting quarterback there that year was a guy by the name of Fred Bassana, but a guy coming in from uh, junior college. Well, Fred, Fred Bassana played for the Oakland Invaders as their starting quarterback. In he the did. 80s. <laughs> he was the MVP of the uh, of the uh, USFL, I think, one year. Yeah, Freddie was my holder the next year, but he came in. And he started the season at quarterback, and, and Joe Joe Roth was a incoming junior who backed him up, and. Three or four games into the year, I can't remember how far we – they started getting him in the rotation. I tell you, Joe Roth was if – you, if you go to YouTube and watch anything he does, it reminds you of a young Dan Marino. He had an unbelievably quick release. Just, he could get rid of the ball. Just a great player. Wasn't big. He probably weighed 195 pounds. So, for, for that time, it would have worked. He was 6'2", six, maybe 6'2". Six, but he could just throw the heck out of him. So he had a game against Washington. Washington was really good. I think our fifth or sixth game that year, he got the start, threw for like 380 and three or four touchdowns, and we blew Washington out. And the next week we played SC, or it might have been the other way around. I think we played SC. And Joe was, by then, he was entrenched as our starter, and our offense just took off. We ended up leading the nation in total offense. Uh, Joe was phenomenal. Uh, Chuck was so I think Barkowski was runner-up to Archie Griffin in the Heisman. I think Muncie was third in the Heisman in 75. And so we had some great players. You know, Wesley could play. Ted Albrecht was one of our tackles for the first-round pick with the Bears. Steve Rivera was a fourth or fifth-round pick with the Bears, a wide receiver. Uh, George Freitas, who was my year, was a sophomore then. He ended up being a, a fifth or sixth-rounder with the Bears. Jesse Thompson was a wideout, was a um, uh, sixth-round pick, seventh-round pick with the Lions, and we both were drafted by the Lions, so that was kind of cool having a teammate go to the Lions. And he had a, a short career, but he ended up having some uh, physical problems. So we had some guys that played. You know, we had some good good athletes and a couple guys that played on defense that played some special teams, uh, Mike O'Brien and uh, you know, it was a long snapper and a safety, so it was kind of an interesting combination. So we we just had some unbelievable talent. Uh, unfortunately, we lost a couple games early. We lost to Colorado, who went 11 and one that year, and then we lost to uh, West Virginia. Bobby Bowden was their coach, and they went uh, 10 and two. So we lost those two games, and then our other loss was to UCLA in a game we had like twice as many yards and. We just kept turning the ball over, and they ended up beating us. And ultimately, we lost one in the Pac-8, so we tied for the Pac-8 championship with UCLA, and they, they went to the Rose Bowl. So a long time, the Pac-8 and the Big Ten, or at least the Pac-8, only sent a team to the Rose Bowl. You couldn't go to any of the bowl games. And my senior year was the first time – actually, I take that back. My sophomore year was the first time they were going to let our conference go to more than one bowl game. And uh, UCLA went to the Rose Bowl, and USC came in fifth in our conference, ended up going to the, uh, I think it was the Astro Blue Bonnet Bowl, and played Texas A&M and shut them out. And t- Texas A&M, I think, was number two in the country at that time. So we had a good, we had a good league. Uh, Washington had Warren Moon. Uh, USC had Ricky Bell, led the nation in rushing, and 
Uh, Vince Evans was their quarterback who became a you know, long had a long career in the NFL, and so big, really a lot of talent. And Anthony Munoz was there, and later on, I guess he got there in '76 or '77. So uh, talent was good. I mean, in the league. All right, so you get to the NFL. You were drafted, I think, was Did it the eighth well, round? I didn't, I didn't talk much. Hold it, hold it. Mike, I'm sorry, I didn't talk about I didn't talk about Joe Ross. Oh, that's right, you you did, and then you went into the other stuff, and you threw me off. Yeah, let me talk, <laughs> let me talk about Joe. Yeah, because in the '76 season, he went in as one of the favorites to win the Heisman, didn't he? He was. He was. He was so talented, and uh, he was going to be a number one pick. And when he'd been in junior college, or just last part of his senior year of high school. And uh, latter part of his senior year of high school or in junior college, he got melanoma. He contracted melanoma. And it, well, it was in remission when he got to Cal. So he played that great season his junior year, and it was outstanding. Well, Muncie leaves. Uh, Wesley was still there. Wes cracked his ribs in our first game against Georgia, Ben Zampezi and the Junkyard Dogs, after catching 68 and 80-yard touchdown passes in the first half. He couldn't play in the second half, and that just our offense just couldn't get going. But Joe was just one of these guys that everybody rallied around. He was just the epitome of a leader, uh, pretty quiet. And man, I mean, guys just they wanted to play for him. He was, he was an amazing player. Well, during that junior year, uh, he, he didn't have a great year because he, he, we really struggled because we just didn't have the wide receivers. Wes was out for several weeks, and uh, we just didn't – guys weren't stepping up like they had previously, and we couldn't get any running game going, so teams just – they came. You know, they just brought it. And, unfortunately, it didn't work out. And he was trying to really carry the team. So he didn't have a great year, and, as he, and he was struggling a little bit. And I remember – Later that year, we're at a basketball game. It's probably in November, right after the big game. Uh, we end up losing to Stanford. And uh, I'm sitting up in the stands watching a basketball game, and Joe's there, and I've got my son, Jimmy, with me. And at halftime, he says, hey, I'll be right back. I've got to go see the docs about something. Well, he goes in, and they were actually talking about the cancer that had that reoccurred. And... The amazing thing was that he came back, sat with us. We never knew. I mean, I never, I never knew anything was up. Nobody was told. Uh, it came out right after the East West Shrine game. He couldn't play in the East West Shrine game. He said he was having back problems. Well, in reality, his body was starting to shut down with his uh, his, his organs. We really, he was really struggling. So the uh, First Japan Bowl was played the second weekend in January that year, I believe. And Joe, I mean, Joe gets on TV. He's talking about the kids from the Shrine. It was the Shrine East West game. All these burn, burn victims and how fortunate he is to have his health. And he's just going on and on and really just more concerned. I think that was the biggest thing. There was greater concern for others versus himself. He felt confident with wherever he ended up in life, he knew Christ and he knew he was going to be with, he was going to be in heaven. And he wanted to make sure his family was good. And 
So the diagnosis came out. He goes to the Japan Bowl. He plays in the Japan Bowl, goes five for six for like 90 yards, throws a touchdown pass. If, um, you know, the Japan Bowl most valuable player was the Joe Roth Award, and just unbelievable. So he gets home, and probably just several days after he's home, he ends up bedridden. And uh, one of the first people that called him, he walks walks into his room, and there's a phone is ringing, and it was Tony Dungy. He and Tony were quarterbacks. Tony played quarterback for the East team, and they got to be pretty good friends. And he knew what was going on with Joe, and he called him, and uh, he was one of the first calls he got when he got back to Berkeley. And just the way, Mike, the way he handled it was unbelievable. I mean, it was just so much grace, humility, concern for others, never complain that, you know, why me when I was going to be a first-round draft pick in the NFL and I get to fulfill my dream. Never any of that. His concern was for his friends, his family. That's, you know, his, his mindset. He was so positive and I never saw him down. He just wanted to have a Joe Roth day. I mean, I, even on, there's a uh, documentary out, even on the documentary, I talk about having a Joe Roth day because, you know, it's, it's never a bad day. You just, you had an attitude that today's going to be a good day. And, and Joe always had a good day no matter what was going on. So, I had so much respect for him, and you know, his mom ended up writing a book, and I had my kids do book reports on it when they were uh, like seventh or eighth grade, and Joe was just uh, one of the really fine human beings I've ever met in my, one of the finest, uh, if not the finest human being I've ever met in my life. He was just a spectacular guy. Uh, he was my holder as a sophomore year, and then uh my senior, my junior year, Fred Bassan ended up holding for me, and Joe ended up being our starting quarterback. And as we've mentioned, Fred went on and had great success in the USFL. So interesting guy. If you ever get a chance to go see clips of him uh, or see or check out the documentary, he a uh, special, special person that was an unbelievable talent. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the only time ever in the NFL draft they took uh, – they had a moment of silence for him, and the New York Giants made a like a memorial number one pick, and that was and they picked uh, Joe Roth. So just a just a class class act, and he, he impacted everybody on that team, and even to to this day. Yeah, and that's why I've heard a little bit of this before, and that's why I wanted to get it out there. Um, I mean, everything I've heard, he was impressive. And the guy I equate him to, not the kind of person, but the kind of football player he was, was, you know, you're in the Cincinnati area, and anybody in their 60s will tell you all about Greg Cook and what might have been. I think Joe Roth is the college version of that and what might have been. Very possibly, yeah. Yeah, Greg was talent that, you know, Bill, Bill Walsh called the greatest quarterback talent-wise that he ever coached, and that included Joe Montana, Steve Young, and everybody else. So. Yeah, Greg Cook was an unbelievable, unfulfilled uh, career, and and Joe never even got a chance to play in the league. And so, yeah, I would agree. That's probably there's probably some similarity there. All right, well, we'll just touch on a couple other things from your career real quick, and I'll let you get out of here. Um, 
you get to the NFL, 1978, I think you were drafted by the Lions in the seventh or eighth round. You got cut in training camp. I think you ended up spending 79 with the Oakland Raiders before you ended up with the Bengals. What was that like those first couple of years of your career? Well, my, my agent was Lee Steinberg, who was just getting started. He, he, had, he had Bartkowski, and that really put him on the map. And he ended up being the agent to the quarterbacks. But at the time, he had, he, when my year that I came out, he had Warren Moon. Um, he had Nick Lowry. He, well, actually, before I had Rolf Benerska. And <clears throat> so I came out. I, got, I did go to Detroit. You know, kicked, kicked well there. And, but I got beat out. And they gave the job to a, a veteran, which I wasn't surprised by. So I, I was call, – I called Lee because at that time – you know, he really didn't know because what was going on. I called him, told him I'd been released, and so he says, "Okay." And the team had asked me to stay uh, for a week. I'm not really sure why. I was naive enough to think that actually there was an opportunity, but there certainly wasn't. But I stayed. I stayed around, and uh, Lee calls me back. I ended up staying at Tom Scladani's house there in Detroit. He had bought a house, and so I stayed that week for, with him. Uh, he was. I roomed with him, and he'd go to practice, and I'd go in the backyard and kick in his backyard over his pool. And he had trees that looked like goalposts, and I'd kick through them. Uh, and Lee and Lee calls. He says, "Yeah, I was doing Charles Phillips' contract, and I was talking to Al Davis, and I mentioned that you had been released." And he says, "You know, we really like Breach coming out of Cal. When he gets back to to uh, the Bay Area, why don't you have him come over, and we'll have him work out." So I got back in the Bay Area, and it was John Madden's last season as the coach for the Raiders. So I called him up, and they had me come over and work out. So I kicked, and Tom Flores was my holder, and I kicked well. I think I made everything I kicked, and Jim Plunkett worked out the same day. So they ended up signing Plunkett, and they uh, told me, uh, we want to sign you for next season. So they said, hey, if anybody calls you, we'll, uh, we'll offer you a signing bonus if you agree not to go anywhere else. We want, you to have, we want you to sign with us. I said, all right. So I went to work for a paper company, and right before the last game of the season, they didn't make the playoffs. Earl Mann was their kicker. and So I get a phone call from Steve Ortmeyer, who ended up his career at Kentucky as a special teams coach. And uh, Ort says, hey, how would you like to come and play for us this week? So I have to go to my supervisor and say, hey, Dave, uh, can I take the week off to go play for the Raiders? <laughs> and that's pretty much what I did. So I took the week off, and but they didn't release Earl Mann, the kicker. So he was still there, and they had a very veteran team, and they were, they were crazy. They were, they were crazy, uh, the Raiders. And they didn't appreciate bringing uh, me in when they felt like they were blaming the season on Earl Mann. So, basically, nobody talked to me. Jeff Barnes talked to me because we had played at Cal, and Rod Martin, who'd only come in a few weeks before I did, who ended up intercepting three passes in the Super Bowl the next, the next season, you know, in 80, in the 80, yeah. after the 80 season. So, uh, that was it. Nobody else had talked to me. They only talked to me because I had to kick, and David Hum, actually, how do you like the ball? And pretty much that was pretty much it. You know, there wasn't much going on. So I remember getting uh, Madden saying, Breach, get in here and kick. And 
man was kicking, and so I went out there and kicked. I made a couple field goals, and then I, I hit one, and next thing I had, the worst thing is a kicker is the two thuds, right? Boom, you hit it, and then another thud. Yeah. Well, I look up, and there's six nine John Matusak looking down at me, and his his butt, one of his buddies was Earl Mann. And he looks at me, he looks down, he says, that one was for Earl. <laughs> so then I went to see to make a couple kicks, and uh, later on he told me that it was Al Davis to put him up to it and to see how he reacts. He always, yeah. he always wanted to test you. You know, you're always being tested. So I didn't actually end up playing in that game or even suiting up. Uh, Madden pulled me aside. At breakfast, he says, look, I'm not blaming this season on one guy, so you, I'm not going to have you suit up. You can start fresh next year in training camp. And uh, that's what I did. So uh, I was on the roster for John Madden's last game as an NFL coach. And I don't think then he you would have been on the do... roster for Tom Flores' first game. I was, yeah. So uh, next, yeah, next year I go to training camp and – End up beating out Earl Mann. In the meantime, if you remember Butch Edge, he'd been drafted by Milwaukee Brewers. The guy's scholarship I took at Cal. And then uh, he went in the expansion draft to the Toronto Blue Jays. So I win the job. Where, and it says, reach house man for Raider job on, in the newspaper. Right below it, it has uh, Blue Jay rookie, Butch Edge, wins first pro game. He beat the A's. So... Butch Edge, who gave me my scholarship, basically, by deciding to play baseball, won his first uh, major league game the same day I made my first first pro team. So it was actually a very cool uh, timing and very ironic. All right. Now, 1980, you had a solid season with the Raiders. I think you're 18 for 27 on field goals. The that was 79. Year, 79. Well, 79, yeah, that's what I meant. Then we get yeah. to 1980, you ended up becoming a Bengal. And the thing that impressed me about the Bengals is everybody always said that Forrest Gregg turned that season around. But as soon as you got there, that team finished up 3-1, and one, and didn't I think he kicked two game-winning field goals also. I did. Yeah, I was. So we're going to say that you're the catalyst that put the Bengals in the Super Bowl. Hey, what can I say? What can I say? <laughs> you know, I, th- I think the biggest thing is the offense started to figure out Lindy and Fonte's offense. Well, I did. I did. Um, we played Baltimore, and Burt Jones brought the Colts back from, I think, down 27 points to tie. They put them ahead by one, and we drove down, and with uh, two seconds on the clock, I kicked a 20-something-yard field goal to win the game as the clock, the clock ran out on the kick. Well, the, the one I remember to... was the Bears game the next week, because back then, if well, you the remember, next... if the game's not sold out, then you didn't get to see it here in Cincinnati. So oh, I, only got to right. listen, I only got to listen to the Baltimore game, but I remember watching the Bears game and you kicked the winning field goal in overtime there. I mean, it was freezing cold, and I was not used to that weather, and the wind was just howling that day. And um, They were driving into the wind at the end of the game instead of trying a field goal of about 35 yards, which I, I have to tell you would have been a tough kick that day. Bob Thomas was their kicker. Uh, they threw one more pass, and Lewis Breeden intercepted it in the end zone. So we went into overtime, and Jack Thompson was playing quarterback. He was in. Kenny had been hurt. Uh, I think he had a bad ankle or something. So Jack drives us down, and I kick an overtime field goal. So that's two weeks in a row. So I, walk, I go in the locker room, and Mike Brown comes up to me and shakes my hand and goes, 
you really seem to like those pressure situations. I said, oh, thanks, Mr. Brown. I really appreciate it. I tell you what, Mike, I didn't have it hard to tell them those are the first two I ever made. <laughs> well, and you go on. You never missed one. Okay, You ended your career at 9 right. for 9. What do you attribute that to? Well, uh, actually, failure. You know, you learn from your mistakes, basically. In my freshman year in college, we played USC, and with uh, 11 seconds left, I had a 34-yard 30, field goal to beat USC. I was, it was the third game I ever kicked in as a uh, freshman in the L.A. Coliseum. And I have to tell you, I was spending so much time worrying about what everybody else was thinking, what my coaches were going to think, my teammates, the stand, people in the stands, my family, what they're going to write in the newspaper. And I just didn't focus anything else on the kick, and I ended up pulling the kick left. So we ended up tying them, and they ended up being national champions that year in one of the polls. Uh, either the week before or the week after that or a week or two after that, that's when Anthony Davis scored six touchdowns against Notre Dame. So we had uh, tied them. And then uh, I was my rookie year with the Raiders, I – I missed a short field goal to tie a game against Kansas City and Jan Stenerud. And I was just bummed. So I get cut by the Raiders at, in training camp of 80. The Bengals cut Chris Barr. And uh, they loved Chris Barr coming out of college. And as soon as he was cut, I knew that my time was limited in Oakland. Because that's the way they did it. I mean, if they wanted a guy, they were going to get him. And So I get cut. Then, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. I was told by uh, Tom or uh, Steve Meyer, he says that was the most unfair decision that I've ever seen. You know, that's it's just not right. And what can I do? You know, I mean, I'm done. And I was feeling really sorry for myself. And then I got a call later on in the year. But in the meantime, I got to reflect. And sometimes you felt. Yeah, you know, I think Jordan did that commercial where he said. I missed 20 times on game-winning I, I, on game-winning shots before I made one, and I failed my way to success. And that's kind of what happened here. I had a little bit of time, obviously, to sit down and really reflect on what was going on. I wasn't nervous, but why was I missing those kicks? And what I realized was my focus was all off. I was worrying about things that I had no control over. I couldn't control what anybody said, thought wrote, you know, whatever the case might be. <clears throat> so I took a different approach. I can't control the snap, the hold, anything. So I went in and decided all I can control is the kick. So I started focusing in on just the kick itself and not even thinking about the other stuff. And it was, it was like a light bulb went on, Mike. It was, it was amazing the difference. And so I ended up going nine for nine in overtime. I hit some other field goals. I didn't miss a lot of big kicks, and occasionally I did miss a couple that, um, you know, knocked one off an upright in the fourth quarter against the Steelers. And but for the most part, you know, I, I my percentage in the say fourth quarter percentage was probably pretty high, and it I really have to attribute it to my focus change. I've kind of kind of figured it out a little bit on how to focus on what I was doing. And uh, it's, it made all the difference in the world. All right. So, and, of course, your most famous kick 
was the 43-yarder in Super Bowl 23, was that any different than any of the other kicks? Did you have any kind of trouble concentrating? Or I'm sure you probably didn't, probably just like any other kick. No. No, it was good. I didn't, uh, again, and, and that's why guys can make putts, big putts or big free throws, is you have your routine and you you have to get into a routine. And if you do your routine, that's your preparation. And if you, as long as you do your routine and you do it the same in practice and you do it all the time, when it gets in the game, you've done that routine so many times. It's almost like you remove yourself from the kick. And that's the same thing that happened in the Super Bowl. So I didn't, I, I really didn't feel bad at all. I mean, I went out there, I was pretty, I was so focused in on what I was doing that I didn't even think about the, uh, that it was three minutes to go in the Super Bowl or that it was, you know, we're a tie, tie game and we had a chance to go ahead. And so I was just so focused in on what, what I prepared for, you know, the, my routine. And I was able to make the kick and, you know, Joe Montana drives those guys 90, 92 yards and beats us. And Jerry Rice and he were just absolutely phenomenal that day, that night. Yeah, I don't like them either, Jim. You can just say it. <laughs> I, I tell you, I don't like. I may not like them, but I, I, I certainly have love and them. I had nightmares about that game for years, and still, every once in a while, I think about it, especially when I'm watching today's Bengals. But we'll bring that up. What did you think of the Bengals draft? I loved it. I loved it. You know, it's. I was a little surprised with Ross, but I wasn't completely surprised. Uh, only from the standpoint that. <clears throat> I know they like speed and they, they want to stretch the field and maybe they saw this him as their uh, Antonio Brown in, in one sense. So uh, that part was uh, somewhat surprising, but not really. Because actually before the, before the pick came in, I said, don't be surprised if they take Ross. Well, see, I uh, took Ross him because I interviewed Ken Zampezi like two weeks before that. And we're talking, and this was off air because he didn't want to talk about the draft on air. And I'm like, so what are you looking for? He says, I want speed. And I said, so you want John Ross? And he goes, I want speed. That's all I'm going to say. So every mock yeah. draft I did after that, I put John Ross on it. So there were a few of them. Then I'm getting all these texts telling me, you were right on that. <laughs> yeah, there were a few people that saw that, but. Uh, you know, speed kills, and then they get mixing in the second round, and it's kind of interesting. It's almost like they didn't want to make the pick. They tried to – they they, they uh, traded out of that pick. They traded down, and they were hopeful, I'm sure, that somebody else would take him, and I think he was just too talented for him to, pa- to uh, pass up. And, okay. and, and I'll tell you, after, the, room. after they made that pick, Jim, I mean, after they made that pick, I was mad, okay, because I'd only seen what I'd seen if you know what I'm saying. I made oh, a call, was, yeah. and I, I actually talked to campus security in Oklahoma, the campus police, whatever it is down there, did a little research, and from the stuff I found out, they were both in the wrong. I mean, she was, from the police report I read, she, she tested positive for drugs and alcohol that night, and there was a ton of people that said that outside of that diner or whatever it was there, that she was being abusive to him and everything else. Now, he shouldn't have followed her in there, but just when you watch him be interviewed about it today, he looks like a well-spoken kid that made a mistake. I agree. He, he may, and he understands he made a huge mistake, and uh, there's nothing he can do about it at this point. So, you know, he's got to uh, he's got to handle as best he can. They have a great locker room. I think the locker room 
will be able to really be supportive of him in every way they can. And for the most part, I think they're going to – it's going to turn out really well. But he's, he's got to be a great community guy. He's got to be really supportive of people going through what he went through, and he's got to perform on the field. If he does all the things, you know, I think people – I don't have to completely put it behind him, but uh, he'll make strides in the right direction because he knows what he did was just unconscionable. And uh, he he's never backed down from what anything I've heard. He's very upfront about it, and he's willing to talk to anybody going through similar type uh, – issues so i give him some credit because it's it's going to be tough and i'm sure it has already been tough at oklahoma yeah because he's under a microscope for the rest of his career rest exactly. of his life probably. absolutely um the the other pick that i really liked i liked both defensive end picks that uh, i think i did too four, very much but the carl lawson i really like i think carl lawson's a first round pick well they had him i know they had him rated a second round pick and they were trying yeah, to but, trade up to get him and they couldn't, they couldn't do it, and just like Billings the year before, they tried to trade up and get him, and they couldn't yeah, get I him. Yeah, people and forget they, that they've got Billings with those three, plus Geno. I mean, so it's like having, Gino, yeah, it's like having another first-round pick. That yeah, right. it's like William having Jackson another starter there. now. Yeah, yeah, and then you add William yeah. Jackson. But the thing I like is you get back to the deep rotation with the defensive lineman, which is what made that defense so good a few years ago. Yeah, I agree. They've got to get some help coming off that corner on the other opposite uh, Dunlap. And, you know, if it's one of these young guys, uh, they they both seem like they have great motors, uh, quick starters. I mean, Woody Evans run a 4-5-1. I mean, and Lawson wasn't – it was like a 4-5-9 or something. So these guys can run. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not really the, the typical defensive end – that the Bengals like, that long and lean guy, 6'6", six, 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 270. He's a guy who's more in the 6'2 range, but they've done it. I mean, they did a good, nice job in college. and So I was excited about the picks they made on the yeah, second and my third only worry, My only worry about this team is the offensive line. I think that's pretty much everybody's worry. Yeah, but, you know, you, you, you first and second round pick, and you draft guys to play, and the Bengals have always done that. that. I don't know. I know they didn't want to lose Whitworth. Zeitler, they'd already decided. I don't know if they really made him an offer because there was no way they were going to be able to keep him. And they knew I don't think there's any way Mike Brown would ever pay that much for any guard. No. I mean, the they fact that he him, get away after 90. Great enough. Yeah, the fact, the fact that they drafted him in the first round was a huge surprise because he just doesn't. He doesn't value guards uh, like some teams do, and a lot of teams don't. I mean, you get the tackles are much more valued because they're out there on an island so often. Obwehi did go. Now, one thing I do understand, I talk in the lap about this. He said Obwehi really has had uh, had some health issues. So now he's healthy for the first time, and, you know, he's able to train, and, and I think it should be great. Uh, he went to Jay Glazer's camp that Whitworth goes to every year and yeah. to get – tougher and he was there for over a month and he to get tougher and get his balance get his feet so those guys bull rushing him be a little bit tougher so i'm really well, excited if, if to him see and fisher him. could even be average this is a team that can win this division yeah and i think that i think having andre smith come i think he's a perfect guard yeah you know if they need because that's a he's a run he, he just runs he loves to run the ball so and they help 
get off the line and push some people back so somebody's backs get a hole or something. So if they can just get a little bit of movement, the, the safeties have got to be concerned about coming too close to the line of scrimmage, right? I mean, you got you got A.J. Green on one side, you got John Ross running the 4-2 on the other. You got Tyler Boyd, too. Well, I mean, I'm just talking speed. The, the safety can't be edging up too quickly and get eight in the box because they do a little play action. You got you got either of those guys one on one out there. And chances are they're going the same. Other safety's gonna head over toward AJ Green. So you got John Ross on the four two out there by him on uh, by himself. I feel, I like that. I like those chances there. Well, the other thing is you got Mixon coming out of the backfield who catches the ball great and as quick as crap. Yeah, well, he does. Geo does certainly, and so I, I think the offense has potential to be outstanding. Now they need yeah, to do a better job in the I know, I know. They they need to do a better job in the fourth quarter. They didn't do a good job at all making adjustments offensively or defensively. They they were ahead in almost every game last year in the fourth quarter, and they just fell apart. They just can't have that. So real quick before I let you go, what's your opinion of the new kicker they brought in from Memphis? I don't know a lot about I mean, I saw him when he was at Memphis. Uh, I think he's really good. Uh, I think the kids today are phenomenally good. You know, in my era, I was good for my era. But compare our era to what these guys do today, I mean, come on. I mean, it's just crazy. They, they well, blow us Jim, away. They're all, they're all kicking off for a real nice turf. There's no grass there, oh, no that mud, too. anything like that either. That too. I mean, that, that is a factor. But just technique-wise, I mean, I, I spent my first five years trying to figure out how to kick. I didn't have anybody yeah. to show me. They've got guys. I mean, there's tons and tons of guys these days that, you know, they're out there doing a really nice job of teaching techniques. So uh, I think he'll do a great job, and I'm excited for him. I mean, they have an opportunity. When you draft a kicker, there's a pretty good chance he's going to be your guy. And, you know, I hope he has a better season than Roberto Aguayo had. Yeah. It'll be interesting, but it will be interesting because the, the first-rated guy was Zane Gonzalez from Arizona yeah, State that went to the Browns. So we'll yeah. get them twice a year. They're in our division. We'll we'll be paying attention, I'm sure, for the first oh. couple of years, comparing how they do. Well, if they're quarterback, he's probably not going to get get to get the kick anything but 50 yard field goals, anyways. Yeah, potentially. So, all right, Jim. I know I kept you like 15 minutes later than I promised, but That's I no will problem. let you go. I uh, would love to have all you right, back Mike. right before the season to talk about it. Also. All right. Well, give me a call. Just let me know. All right. Thanks a lot, Jim. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep, you too. All right, guys, that was former Bengals kicker Jim Breach. I'm going to remind you guys to check out replenishingtechnologies.com and Gridiron Mo, our two sponsors. Um, Also, you can find all of our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, anywhere you find sports podcasts, you'll find The Grueling Truth. If you're a Bengals fan and you haven't heard it yet, you can go to www.thegruelingtruth.net. Hear my interview with Ken Riley last week. We've also got former interviews with Reggie Williams, Kenny Anderson, Lamar Parrish, Tim Crumry. So make sure you go to thegruelingtruth.net, check that out, and check out all of our other players, or former players, guys like Robert Brazil, Roman Gabriel, Ronnie Lott. Um, so, We will catch you guys next time on the show. And remember, later on in this week, we will have four guests. Tomorrow night, we will have Efren Herrera, former kicker for the Seattle Seahawks. 
Um, Lafitte Pinkai, the second winningest jockey of all time, will be on our show Thursday. Thursday night, we'll have former lightweight champion Livingstone Bramble. So make sure you check out all this on www.thegruelingproof.net. So for Jim Breach, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legends speak.